Can comedy help us talk about things that are difficult to confront? Can laughing about taboos and anxieties be good for us? Stand-up comedian and director of Jericho Comedy, Alex Farrow, joins me, Yang Mei Ui, to laugh, sometimes a little earnestly, about anxiety. Welcome to The Anxiety Advantage, the podcast that asks... How can we thrive in an age of anxiety? I'm Yang Mei Ui. I'm a writer and podcaster. I'm not an expert on anxiety. I have no medical or therapy type qualifications. I'm a writer. And like many people, I have struggled with anxiety. My purpose in these podcasts is to explore with curiosity how these very human feelings affect all our lives. Today, I'm talking with Alex Farrow, stand-up comedian and director of Jericho Comedy. This is the last episode of season one, but not the final one. There will be one more episode next week where I share what I have learnt from our journey together during season one. And I will also be talking about what is in the pipeline for season two, which will be launching in the new year. Meanwhile, for this penultimate episode, let's get talking with Alex Farrow. Alex Farrow, what are some of the anxieties that we face today, do you think? And how do you address them in your stand-up show? I'm particularly interested in those in, in terms of social media and sort of technology, particularly. I think we're both observed and required to put ourselves up for observation. I think more than anyone or in, in the past could possibly have been. I think I heard it was in, in 2012, I think it's a fascinating statistic I read in the newspaper, more photographs were taken that year than had been taken in the entirety of the history of the photograph up until that point. There was a real sort of explosion around sort of 10 years ago. And I think there's something anxiety-inducing about having to present ourselves all the time. I think we have the, what do they say, the sort of the, I think it was one of the philosophers, wasn't it? I think it's possibly Jeremy Bentham, whose method of control in sort of prison was this thing called the panopticon, where we were being watched all the time. But there's a great sort of trickery of the modern age as we've given up our privacy in so many ways. And I think that we forget that there's a sort of an anxiety that comes a lot with that. And so I've got this whole long bit about how the mobile phone is an extended self in my current stand-up show, which I think I certainly find fascinating. And the hope is that audiences up and down the country will find such things equally interesting. Yeah, so I think you came of age in the days before mobile phones. And I came across some letters between my siblings and me when we were younger. And we had spent the weekend together. And then we went off to our respective places. And a few days later, we'd got a letter, I've arrived safely. So they would have gone back on Sunday. And the letter would have gone through on Wednesday. And it's like, Oh, yeah. Okay. Whereas now, if we assume that they're going to take an hour to get home and they haven't messaged us in an hour and one minute, are you all right? Have you arrived? Is everything okay? It means that we can never be alone in some ways. And I think it's somewhat unfashionable to be alone in some ways, actually. People would be like, oh, I'd like to be alone today. I think if you said that, people would ask, are you okay? We always focus on how important it is to talk, and absolutely it is. We should be opening up about anxieties, but there's absolutely a time for silence, for separateness, for, for solitude, right? That's the difference between good being alone and bad being alone. Right? Solitude is the good form of it, and uh, it's a form of chosen solitude that uh, I miss in some ways. 
And what do you think this, do you think there's a relationship between the presentation of self always being on and an anxiety about being alone that we are some, there's something going on around not being comfortable or being afraid of our own company or is it some sort of existential crisis that we have when we're not connected with other people? The, a group of the philosophers known as young people are actually genuinely quite good at this sort of thing. There's names for it. I'm sure you're familiar with FOMO. Are you familiar with FOMO? <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's, it captures the spirit of the time, doesn't it? This fear of missing out. If I leave my phone at home, what if I get an invite? What if I miss something happening? What if somebody needs to get hold of me? What if, what if this, what if that? What if something interesting happens, but I can't record it? I can't capture it. I feel, I feel 150 years old when I say this sort of thing, but it bears saying again, but, you know, going to a concert and everybody watches the concert through the screen. It's, there, there is something lost with that. There is this desire and this need to share. Like, did, were you really there if you didn't photograph it? It's another thing that young people say. I think there's probably a better way of saying that, but <laughs> there, there really is something to that. I wouldn't want to come across either as though, oh, these naive youngsters, they don't even know. I actually think a generation below me is probably much better adapted to some of the anxieties of technology because they've had more time to get used to it. They've got more time to understand it. We've got better as a society at recognising that this thing can be an issue. I have a friend who's got this app uh, where if she's staring at a phone too long, trees start dying on this app. And perhaps it's not so much about technology being evil or unhealthy in itself, but it's about our relationship with technology. Because I'm thinking about FOMO, fear of missing out, and what if I miss having picking up this party invitation? That is potentially quite healthy in the sense of, I want to live my best life. I want mm. to live the fullest life. I don't want to be just stuck at home being really boring and every single day is the same. I want to go out and spend time with my friends. And that in itself, as a, if you like, an anxiety is good. You want to stay connected. You want to be social. We are social animals. But it's about getting the balance right so that you're not completely controlled by this anxiety, but actually have a healthy relationship to it. I could not agree more. And I think this thing about filming the concert while you're there, you're watching the whole thing through your little screen. And again, you see, there's the sort of, I want to capture this moment. I want to remember this moment. And that is a very human uh, feeling because, of course, time ticks on and we get older. And at one time, I'm looking at myself in the video camera at the moment. At one time, I had jet black hair and now I've gone a bit grey. And time just passes and you want to capture that moment. And I do love being able to look back at old photographs of family, of past generations, of my grandparents, of myself when younger with friends and lovers and all the rest of it. But it's get, again, it's like, well, okay, I'm just going to take a few clips now and I've got that to preserve. And now I'm going to be fully present at the concert. But it's quite easy to forget because it might, oh, the next moment might be the moment that, I don't know, Adele falls off the stage and I want to catch that, or she sings the most beautiful note. And so sometimes we just have to be very aware of the moment and aware of our relationship with, with this anxiety. Yeah, so true. I mean, I think it's, is it John Locke who always says that it's our memories that make us the same person over time? This great question, how, why we're the same person we were as a child as we were as an older person. Our bodies have changed. We're physically very different, but it's the thing that makes us continuous is memories. And those used to be stored in, in the mind only or occasionally in well written journal or a letter, you know. 
now they're stored in another place, either in, in the cloud, in this sort of virtual heaven, which when some of us pass away, this virtual heaven will contain all these memories still. And I think there's something relatively beautiful with that. But I think we must be wary of how much time we spend in the virtual versus the real. Is it the role of comedy, do you think, to confront difficult issues, to talk about taboo subjects that we don't feel comfortable expressing in everyday life? This is a, a really like good and very frequent question of now. Number one, and I say there's absolutely nothing wrong with a knock joke. <laughs> there's absolutely nothing wrong with very silly, very playful pieces of comedy that have no noticeable social commentary. There's, there should be no, no guilt in enjoying comedy for its own sake. That said, it's often very satisfying for a, a comedian to explore some of the deeper, more existential questions of life and some of the more um, politically pressing questions of the age. I think both. I think all of it is completely valid. And I think if you pick one over the other, you're not in some way like a lower brow comedian or a less important one. But I think we forget that. I think we forget that it's all, it's okay to laugh at somebody falling over with big shoes on. I think that's fine. <laughs> so I want to just describe a little moment at this comedy festival that where you and I met, actually. It was the Oxford Festival of the Arts, and you were the MC for a number of comedians, including Rosie Jones. Now, she is absolutely brilliant and is completely in control of her material. And she opens with this story about going on a date, and she has these jokes about lesbian sex and her disability, and she throws in the word vulva here, there, and everywhere. <laughs> and the audience are laughing. It's a little uncomfortable because one doesn't normally hear the word vulva just thrown about. But there's general laughter, and people are quite relaxed and getting into it. And then she says, and the date was going really fine until I came out as an anti-vaxxer. And the whole auditorium went completely silent and you could feel the tension and discomfort. And oh, by God, why, what's going on here? Would you deconstruct that for us? Rosie there, very much conforming to the, one of the Freudian theories of laughter response. So she puts the audience in a state of tension. What will the comedian do? It was There's a this jeopardy in the air, as it were. And Freud has this whole sort of theory about how he claims all laughter is the sort of the expulsion of this repressed energy. And he thought that very literally, that like the motion of laughter in the body was this repressed energy being released. It's why jokes about vulvas and all the darkest things in the world tend, he said, to make us laugh the most because they were, that's the thing that we spend all this day repressing and that laughter releases. Anyway, and of course, Rosie Jones has a, has a great twist, a great release. And I feel that you may well be able to tell the release better than I can, Yang. How does Rosie release that tension? Do you know what? I've completely forgotten the rest of the story. <laughs> <laughs> because it was that moment of tension that stayed with me. And it was something to do with her having had a jab. I think it, she, that is the hot, one of the hot potatoes currently that people are feeling very extremely anxious about. Should you be jabbed? You don't want to be jabbed. Can you socialize with someone who hasn't been jabbed? All those very fraught things she encapsulated within this really good piece that made us laugh and brought to mind these current issues. We've absolutely murdered Rosie's punchline here because I'm very good on it as well. But the release is worth pointing out that Rosie Jones is a 
fully COVID vaccinated human being. I don't think she'd <laughs> join me probably. <laughs> the twist on the end is that it's the contraceptive jab, isn't it? That I think it, that's, right, the, yes. that's the one. Yeah. Somebody asks if you if she's had the jab to have sex and Rosie's like, no, I'm a lesbian. I, I don't need the jab. And so it's a I believe it to be a twist on that. Apologies, Rosie, if you listen to this. We've absolutely murdered your bit. It's about being able to laugh at something that is that makes us feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I find sometimes with friends or in in a social situation, something comes up and you, we, there's a silence and then somebody makes some sort of pathetic joke about it because that just diffuses the mm-hmm. tension. And sorry, that's not to say that I'm equating my pathetic joke with um, the Rosie. <laughs> <laughs> we all use humour, like, all the time. It's not as though it's reserved only for these this handful of people who can do it on stage. I think stand-ups in particular sort of forget that uh, humour and comedy is rife throughout society. Where If you see two people laughing together, none of them will have told a traditional joke, but they will all be using humour. We're all experts, I guess it. And I think that uh, there's a very particular form of it where you can transform out of stage. Rosie Jones is very good. You saw Olga that night as well and Phil Wang. I mean, there's a way of turning that into a sort of a stage performance. But I think I think comedy is essential. It's as essential as doing exercise. It's essential as like doing a, a, a puzzle for sort of your mental agility. It's a, an essential part of being human. And I think that for either some people or I think I still feel like I had a number of school teachers when I was growing up who felt that like oh humor was a great distraction from life not just from lessons but from oh what a good human being should do you know that our humor is what gets in the way of productivity and a person achieving their goals and aims but I think it's couldn't be further from the truth humor is just as important as other forms of like learning or expression or education, we should have the same place for it as music, I think. But uh, I think it's the lowest form of the arts, I think, often it's considered to be. <laughs> but actually, it's a very human emotion. I'm just reflecting back to November when my dad died and my mum was in Malaysia and my, my siblings and I were here. And because of COVID, we couldn't be with her. And we had group calls on WhatsApp and we were trying to put together the eulogy and also subsequently the epitaph. And we were laughing and crying all at the same time because we had a shared family sense of humour and we came up with some very silly things to put for my dad and we just laughed and we would have known, we could just see him there laughing along with us. And it was not disrespectful to him because there was, mm. you think, oh no, it's a very serious situation. We must all be very serious. But actually laughter gave us a sort of release and it also brought us together because we had this shared commonality of our silly sense of humour that was an in, in jokes and that kind of thing. Although it may be the lowest form of the arts, I think it's actually very a human way of dealing with anxiety and distress. I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. The picture you paint sounds very beautiful, young mate. And uh, I hope, yeah, I, I can bring as much humour to a similar context when the time is right. Thank you. So, t- taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture, what do you think has been the role of mockery and laughter through the ages? For example, the role of the the court jester comes to mind. 
every stand-up comic likes to think that they're like the new jester speaking truth to the power telling the king what no one else is willing to do and say and so there's a absolutely a great tradition i think it was uh, somebody like aquinas or augustine who said that the jester must be ugly of face and moronic of demeanor it's that that allows him to mock the king there's this idea in comedy of permitted dissent that we give a handful of skilled individuals, a handful of fools, this ability to criticise where no one else can do it for whatever reason. And so what either Aquinas or Augustine is saying about the jester is because they're quite low status, as we mentioned earlier, because the arts of comedy is considered quite low, particularly if you're a medieval king, jester was supposed to be fool figure, and the word for jester is fool. But it's the Socratic fool. It's the ability to speak truth to power, to punch up and to tell those with the ability to invade another land, what they should and maybe shouldn't be doing. And we do get an element of that today, that a good joke teller, taking like Rosie again, right? Rosie's got this great ability to say what no one else can possibly say about issues fascinating about disability, about lesbianism, about the jab. I mean, it's we really, that idea of permitted dissent, I think is beautifully expressed by Rosie. It comes to mind for me back in my day, I think it was the 80s or the 90s, when Maggie Thatcher was in power, there was the weekly comedy series Spitting Image with these hideous caricature puppets and these jokes about the people in power. Mm. And it, that's exactly what you described, the ugly demeanour. I, like I would like to point out that Rosie Jones is not an ugly individual. <laughs> but, so there's a difference between the medieval jester and the modern stand-up. I, I really think that's worth emphasising. There were different things. There's Rosie's skill as a writer and as a performer that allow and give her permitted dissent. Rosie is very fine looking human being but I think, that's worth, I think that's worth really emphasizing there that yes. all comedians that i'm on stage with tend to be very very beautiful on the inside and the outside i would like to <laughs> yes alex is particularly good looking and rosie as well i was particularly referring to the spitting image puppets <laughs> the, the, where i was going with this that's <laughs> right was around not ugly of demeanor but rather speaking truth to power or yeah. who do you think um uh, or what do you think is the battleground currently with stand-up comedians maybe taking the role of a spitting image team back in those days? There's so many stand-ups up and down the UK speaking truth to power. I watched, I think, last night Jacob Hawley. It's fantastic. Political comic, one of my absolute favourites, Ahir Shah, another fantastic comedian. I know, I know this takes on a really different fate. I was in a writer's group during lockdown and the great thing about these writer's groups on lockdown is you'd have comedians from all around the world joining them and uh, we met a couple of Russian comics who were, you know, I think we were probably last discussing, I can't even remember what it would have been, but it, it wasn't political and I, obviously I, this year things became very different and uh, so those Russian comics now can no longer easily join that writer's phone call. But before proper contact was lost with my two Russian writer friends. They were choosing to go out in the, before I lost contact in that first week of the invasion, choosing to go out to open mics to be very openly critical. To the best of my knowledge, they're both okay. I know one is now in Israel, but there's, a, there's an extra level of bravery to those individuals within Russia who are using comedy in their own small ways to, to passively resist. And it, it matters. I mean, it's, I think I can't remember if we spoke about this before, but I mean, there are stand-up comedy gigs currently happening in Kiev, in, in Ukraine itself. Very, 
brave individuals there choosing to continue their art form. I read, uh, admittedly, I don't know any Ukrainian comics, but uh, some of the jokes there are the, are the darkest, funniest things I've ever heard. The threat of, obviously, Ukraine sold this chap called Anton working, I would say his second name, working in eastern Ukraine at the moment as a stand-up. And his, one of his jokes that really stuck in my mind was about how Ukraine had sold all its nuclear weapons to Russia. And so Ukraine was experiencing the first nuclear cashback in history, which is, I mean, there were, and that was one of the lighter ones. That was one of the easier retellable ones. And it's real, if we're talking about sort of anxiety release, this ability to laugh in the face of the absolute darkness. I think it's a very, a very admirable and appropriate response of many appropriate responses. I think when something is horrible, it is worthy of being mocked. There seems to be several layers to the, that kind of anxiety. There's the the comic expressing the anxieties of the ordinary people living under in a war situation or under that kind of threat. Then there's also the anxiety of a any regime that mm. is mm. seemingly so powerful, but so scared of someone saying something that doesn't agree with the party line. And that has always struck me as quite curious because and I think one of the things about coming to the UK for me was seeing things like spitting image and political jokes which you know government don't sweep down and herd them all away and lock them up because well I don't know because why what is the difference why do some countries and nations or values allow this even though it might be upsetting and to to the powers to be but other regimes do not well, there's two sort of theories about humour in liberal democracies. So one is a very a romantic view that in liberal democracies, humour is valued in its ability to speak truth to power. The, the government cannot and would not shut it down because of its values. It's part of the discourse. It's part of what makes liberal democracies strong and the expression of ideas, the expression of criticism. And some people say we're healthy society with a liberal democracy has a very strong comedic tradition of criticism of the government. A slightly more alternative view, I can't remember who's most associated with it, tends to be a more Marxist criticism of, of comedy and societies, is that particularly in liberal democracies, humour actually ends up acting not for change, but actually in a quite conservative fashion, in that it can be a sort of a, a pressure release valve. People can attend the stand-up comedian or the, the, I think the common example would be the cabaret clubs of Berlin. And you can laugh at the comedian making fun of the dictator or the government or whatever, but your energy is spent. You feel, well, I've expressed myself, I've expressed my dissent, and in some ways it can act as a distraction, is the criticism. I tend to lean much more towards the idea that it's a useful part of a healthy liberal discourse. But we do have to be careful. We have to be careful for when you listen to your favourite satirist to go, oh, well, there we go. I've done my political act for the day. But the world is is probably not very directly changed by humour. There is other, it's part of a chain of steps. You must, if you agree with the content of the things that you are hearing, act upon it too. There's no change in that action. And so does so to then think about the regimes that crack down on comics and comedy this is there anxiety that by by these jokes these barbs and the mockery that 
that will lead to a chain reaction that will bring them down? Or is it that they, so are they not as confident in their own sense of what they believe in and what they've made happen in their country that someone laughing at them will bring the whole house of cards down? And so there's different, almost different ways that those in power can utilize this. I used the phrase permitted dissent earlier. Again, sometimes politically, the phrase permitted dissent is used critically. And so there is a permitted form of opposition in most dictatorships. It gives the illusion of freedom, the illusion of choice. It gives a place for pe- people to put their anxieties and worries, but it's, it's like sacrificial armour. The helmet is designed to break when it is hit, right? And it's like, oh, I've smashed the helmet. So yeah, but the skull is left intact. And so there is a, a long tradition of these sort of pressure-released valves being used. And I think that comedy is one of them. I remember we mentioned it right at the beginning. The court jester was often allowed in the court to be so critical and you could hit the king on the head with a pig's bladder and all that sort of stuff but it was that was always a a safe way of being mocked right it's when the barons themselves those with power were if they were to ever mock the king they'd lose their heads sort of thing but it's a way of keeping your barons in check to have a jester within the system some say a version of permitted dissent and you can see i'm probably grappling with whether i am the version of good dissent or bad dissent i can't it's something that i've been writing out my stuff for a show today and i was like hi is this am i hitting hard enough is the is this a force for change based on criticism or is it me just moaning and i think that i'd like to be on the better side of change rather than a sort of a, a permitted form of tension relief to preserve power systems So what are your thoughts on Ukrainian President Zelensky, who started his career in improv and was a comic actor before he became president? I think Zelensky is a hero. It's short up. I think incredible work that he's done as president in terms of what is the relationship. I think it's just a reminder that just because somebody is a, a comedian, it doesn't mean they're a fool. I think Zelensky is a very sharp, very wise individual. So many like synonyms for comedian do mean things like fool the phrase who is this clown nothing we're nothing lower in some people's estimation than being a clown but it's always i think to do it well you require razor sharp understanding really and i think of all the many lessons we can learn from a lot of it the one of those is that just because somebody is funny it doesn't mean they're not razor sharp Two things come to mind, which is that sometimes people perhaps go into comedy and satire because they feel so passionate about their country or particularly about a particular cause that their way of speaking up about it, you can go one way, which is to make impassioned speeches like Martin Luther King, or you can criticise and make fun of people whom you feel are making a real mess up of the country or the, the situation that you feel passionate about. And so perhaps as as you say, as, as a stand-up uh, comedian or a comic person um, isn't a fool, but there is a passion under that. Because otherwise, why put yourself through it to go out there? And I think that the second point that comes to mind, the class comic comes to mind, those people that tend to be generally young boys who play the fool in class. Often when you hear some of these stories, they are actually incredibly bright, but for some reason, they're not coping in class or in an academic situation. And so that's their way of managing that anxiety. 
Do you have any thoughts on that? I'm suddenly this uh, obsessed with permitted dissent. But what's so fascinating is that the class clown, the class comedian is always so frequently a young boy. And I think it's because we permit young boys this sort of we give them this card to play up a little bit boys will be boys and so it often is the class clown is the boy interrupting the teacher or being silly or bringing in a i was a bit of that for sure i think it's because we're softer on them or we tolerate it or we expect it in a ways that like i think young women and girls are just as funny but we become the things that we expect of people and i think that uh, it's interesting that we permit some people this sort of this silliness and others were like oh no no permitted descent for you you must listen to the teacher uh, i used to be a school teacher so i'm so particularly fascinated by that and uh, i must admit we all fall into you know, these ways of thinking was i softer on on the kid that brought in a fish to the lesson and hid it under my desk does i softer on him because he was a boy would i've treated that boy differently if they were a girl would i be more shocked i don't know and i think yeah who we permit laughter to we're all our own mini dictators in some ways like we must be careful to be permitting it to all equally that is so interesting we've touched on gender and comedy and i'd like to stay with that i've heard that on the stand-up comedy circuit it's mainly men it's quite difficult for women to break in and i'm thinking of okay it's a fictitious story but the marvelous mrs Maisel Mm -hmm. about a 1950s housewife who becomes a stand-up comic and the difficulties that she faces in amongst all the pretty clothes and bubblegum aspect of that and some of the other women comedians who have said it's difficult breaking in and being respected and that those sorts of things do you have any thoughts about that Certainly changing. There's definitely more female stand-up comics than ever. I think there's still a number disparity. I think as, as recently as ten years ago, it was still you'd still might read a newspaper column. I think was it Christopher Hitchens who was wrote quite a famous one about how women aren't funny. It's certainly false, but you get you get sort of new versions of it sometimes. Uh, often kind of hidden as kind of compliments. It, it's quite common to hear and it's normally a female audience member saying this to a female comedian it's like oh i don't normally find women funny but you were great remarkably like common thing to hear and it's it's always said as a with the intent of a compliment i think the female comics i know tend to get a bit tired of it but i really genuinely think it's changing one of the topics that i want to explore in a future episode if i can find the right person to help me deconstruct it is male anxiety social anxiety societal anxiety Mm. around female power and female Mm. unspokenness because a lot of what you've just described is feels to me like, oh, it's not ladylike. Oh, a girl shouldn't be able to do that. Mm, and they mm. used to say that about women riding bicycles, women doing sports <laughs> and that sort of stuff. Yeah, oh my word, yeah. <laughs> There's something about a woman riding a bicycle is like a fish riding a bicycle or something. It just seems so odd in our current times, but there is still a lot that needs to be done around recognising that women are human beings too. And that <laughs> what? <laughs> really? <laughs> it's and the fact that women are standing up and making comedy and speaking out is beginning to change the landscape, but there's still much change to be had, I feel. 
Oh, yes. The struggles of those without power continue, for sure. It's worth, I think we've mentioned Rosie Jones and Olga Kolk quite a lot. Olga's first show is all about how her father had to flee Russia. It'd be well worth seeking them out if you'd like to. If you're sitting there and thinking, oh, I'd like like to see some evidence of these funny women, I I couldn't recommend either of those two enough. And staying with the diversity theme, one of the people on that night was Phil Wang, who is Malaysian. And of course, I'm from Malaysia, so I was particularly interested. Can we talk a little bit about BAME comedians? I think of Phil, I know Phil as Phil, rather than as Phil with Malaysian heritage Phil. (laughs) While it's so important to be aware of diversity, I think sometimes we can be so aware of it, we accidentally insult the person. I've heard the comedian Jamie D'Souza's got a really funny bit about the mo- at the moment. Jamie D'Souza is he's half Indian, half Swiss, whatever, and he's always being introduced as always his Indian comic, Jamie D'Souza. And he's like, I'm also Swiss. It's <laughs> also an important part of like, what I do. He's always commissioned to write these things about India and, and all that sort of stuff. And he's like, I'm Swiss Indian. Not from Swindon, but you know, he's very, people should be asking me to write about cuckoo clocks and Toblerones and stuff as part of what I should be associated with. I think sometimes we can see trying to be really like caring, aware of the multitude of people in the world. We see an individual, not as an individual, but as their multitude. And so absolutely, it's so important to be aware of race and how race intersects with other forms of like, of power. But usually in the comedy world, you can get labelled by your race. You can feel like you have to talk about, you almost have to address this elephant in the room of the colour of your skin. And I look forward to a time when that's a choice rather than a necessity. The comedian doesn't have to come up on stage and say, oh, I know what you're thinking. Or I feel I've gone down some rabbit hole. Phil is very funny about this as well. Like Phil sometimes gets described as a minority comedian. He's got, I'm going to murder his material. Sorry, Phil. But he's like, look, I'm half Chinese, half white. Like, I'm the majority. I'm more majority than anything. I'm Pepsi and Cola. I'm sorry, Phil, I've ruined you. I've ruined the bit. Please don't think Phil's not a good comic because I've hammered that bit. But it's, I think it's the job of the comedian to play with expectations and to left foot and pull the rug under and run the rest. And so I think that's a, when comedians are doing that, it's often my favourite favorite technique. And Phil and Jamie Lissi to do that great. You bring up some interesting points for me to reflect on. I, this podcast series is the anxiety advantage. It's not the Chinese advantage. That's an aspect of my interest that, that I have pulled out of the hat to explore. To me, being Chinese is not that interesting because well, it's just me. And I, I started life as a, as a writer. And I wrote a couple of novels, which I pitched to to the publishing world as Amy Tan meets John Grisham. Exactly. And I got a big deal out of that. But what then that led me down was this path of an expectation that I would write about being an Asian in a thriller type mm-hmm. situation. And I remember submitting a synopsis for my third book, which was didn't really have any specific Asian theme. It was set in London and there was a sort of token heroine who was Chinese. <laughs> but, but nothing else was particularly East Asian. And the publisher said, you're the East Asian thriller person. And this is going to be difficult for you to compete with all the other white thriller writers about white thriller situations. So that was quite interesting and frustrating. And it's something that I struggle with because when you see me, I look Chinese. When I speak, I don't sound 
Chinese. And I quite like to play with that because mm-hmm. it is about what you say about playing with the expectation. They say about what you talk about. What you, so is it that for minority, for the lack of a better word, writer comedians, <laughs> they, there is a sense that, well, actually some of this is about my life and my race impacts on my life, or I have observations about the world that come from that. And so I'm going to use that in my material, but then that actually funnels them down a route that necessarily they can't come back from. I mean, these things can be a risk, basically, for the listener. I I am from the south of England. I did a heritage test many years ago. I mean, we're talking assorted Western Europe, really nothing, nothing particularly that you wouldn't expect, perhaps, from I don't know, somebody with this accent. But that said, it's like, I'm going to say something very earnest and I'm supposed to be a comedian, so I'm supposed to say something not earnest. (laughs) Yeah, you just got to try and treat, look at the whole human being, haven't you? That's the thing, that's what matters. And it's the whole human being, absolutely. You've got to pretend that somebody doesn't have a race. I mean, that was fashionable when I was growing up. You almost, you almost wouldn't have to say it. That was almost as bad. And then occasionally now as a stand-up comic, there's great pressure. Oh, we talk about your heritage. Some of what the purpose of this podcast is to talk about anxiety mm. and to put it, to put it out there to say, I may appear very slick and polished as I'm babbling to you through this microphone, but actually I have struggled with anxiety from time to time in my life. And so touching the theme of what we started off with touching on the things that make us uncomfortable to talk about anxiety race taboo subjects and it's healthy to put it on the table sometimes you've got to laugh about it in order for it to be spoken mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. and other times actually being earnest is okay too. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> what anxieties do you grapple with personally I worry deeply about because I do have this sort of platform. I worry deeply about what if I what if I misuse it, particularly talking about race. Oh my god, what if I say something that's going to be horribly hurtful? And then I worry in the sense that, like, particularly with online content, when you film something and you put it out, you at least within the comedy club, you often can see the faces, you can hear what's kind of going on, and you can stand by the joke or adjust and and adapt and stuff like that. I have great anxieties about my words. I live by my words. And it's all very well me going throughout this saying, you know, comedy is supposed to mock the powerful. But I get anxieties about, have I gone too far? I mock the philosopher B.F. Skinner in a bit. I was thinking the other day, it's like, oh, who is this joker at the expense of? B.F. Skinner said that, oh, if something behaves like it's having the experience, then it is. And philosophers' minds say, oh, this is one of the reasons why intelligent computers may well have minds. If something behaves like it's having the experience, then it is. But it just makes me feel really sorry for B.F. Skinner's wife. And just because it behaved like you were having an orgasm doesn't mean that you were. I mean, you know, I just stay a version <laughs> on stage. And I'm like, oh, is this, what is, who's this, is this joke at the expense of anybody? Am I making fun of something that I shouldn't do? That brings to mind the instant at the Oscars where Chris Rock mm-hmm. made a joke of Will Smith's wife and her condition. And would you deconstruct that for us? Oh, right. Yeah. Well, Chris Rock. I don't know. It wasn't a particularly complex joke. It seems to su- suggested that Will Smith's wife, who has alopecia, re- resembles a GI Jane or something like that. I believe that is the beginning and the end of the joke. If one were to defend Chris Rock, some suggest that 
he didn't know that she had alopecia or that in particularly in Afro-American culture to be a bald black woman is often a chosen stylistic choice. Did he know that aspect? I've not gone into the details of that. Was it just a joke about a lady with a medical condition that probably gives her anxiety? Like it's not... I almost feel that there were subtleties present at the that weren't necessarily thrashed out online. But then it's the it is indeed it's the it's the nightmare. The nightmare is that not only do you cross the line, which some comics are more comfortable with than others, but whether you're comfortable with it or not, you always gang anxiety about it. But a recent trend, actually, not not only because of Chris Rock being struck, but is violence towards performers on stage, particularly within comedy. It's, there's been a real uptick post 2020. Lots of theories about, oh, is it to do with people forgetting how to behave because they were locked in or whatever. But yeah, I got, yeah, I got threatened with being struck in the face. It mainly actually by another comic a couple of weeks ago. And it is, uh, yes, I don't think, I, I must admit, young man, I'm one of the, I would hardly describe myself as an edgy comic, but uh, I think the person in, who wanted to strike me as a very unwell individual. That's part of the risk that we touched upon earlier around talking about taboo subjects, mm-hmm. talking about mm-hmm. difficult issues. It's potentially you trigger, so you press a button, hot buttons, and so people get upset or they laugh or they get upset and yes. they laugh yes. or they get upset and they come up and they biff you on. And it's, it is part of the the role of that kind of comedy to confront difficult issues and to express our anxieties. But for some people, the anxieties feel too raw and not quite processed yet. And speaking of triggers, do you think, what do you think of trigger warnings? And do you think comedy should have trigger warnings on it? Oh, God, that's a, that is a good question. That is a fantastic question. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes, definitely. There are times when it's harder to do that. And I wouldn't want, I think there should be a balance between the freedom of expression and to curtail the performer. So I know it's a fantastic comedian, Chelsea Birkby, performing this year at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. She's doing a wonderful show called No More Mr. Nice Chelsea, about how we think that women should be nice or whatever. And she gets she has a very personal sort of confessional bit about um, a very dark moment in, in her life. And she's asking, should I be saying that at the top of the show? And it's like, it's very difficult in the sense that the power of that movement is the when this this individual who was a support and a friend is a great twist a great twist in the narrative and it's like by putting the warning in you lose the narrative you almost lose the whole sort of story these things are so important to not hurt somebody about but also there is an artistic tension with them sometimes and so i would my my policy on it is to trust the humanity of the of the performer and the writer can you do it and if you can do it without artistic loss, yeah, why not? But I think there is a genuine tension between telling people what the content will be from kindness and ruining what the content will be because of kindness. And is there something around trusting the humanity of the audience? I think what I'm finding throughout my investigation across this podcast series is trying to get rid of anxiety doesn't really work. But being able to sit with it. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't know, you've you've gone out for dinner and you've spilt a glass of water all over you and you're <laughs> sitting at the rest of the restaurant, the rest of the dinner with wet knickers. And I know it's a very trivial example, but you know, you're sitting there and it's really uncomfortable. But 
okay, can I sit with it for a bit longer? Can I sit with it for a bit longer? And then you get through it. And of course, I don't want to offend or upset people with chronic anxiety that is much more not as manageable as that. But what I guess what I'm saying is, are there levels of anxiety where one could find a way to manage it that is not about, oh, quick, get rid of it. Equally, oh, no, I don't. Obviously, it's horrible if it's if it's overwhelming, but there's somewhere in the middle. And I don't really know the answer. And I guess that's part of this exploration. I think one strategy, and you know, I, I by no means am I any sort of medical expert or anything like that, but one strategy is to have is, is suppression, which if it works for you, that's great. But I think there's another strategy as well, which is if you're having anxiety rather than suppressing it, you allow it to, in a somewhat meditative way, you allow it to to notice it, be aware that it's there, but not necessarily be troubled by it. So easier said than done, easier for some than others, for sure. I saw a fascinating study. I, I should probably have written it down somewhere, but uh, comedians often they get anxiety before going on stage, particularly at the beginning, right? It's great social anxiety. But after time, they normally say, stand comics, oh, I tend not to feel nervous anymore. But what, what you can do, and it's like, oh, which paper? Anyway, I'll try and email it you if I find the exact paper. If you measure the heart rate and the sweat of a comedian of many years before going on stage, their heart rate is as elevated as somebody on a roller coaster, their sweat levels, all these sorts of things are, they're physiologically in a state of stress, in a stress set. But if you ask them, well, I, what do you feel? And then, oh, no, I feel fine. And so I think one of the theories about what's going on there is that physiologically, these people are still, these comics are still as stressed as they probably were the first time they were going to go out in front of a room full of people to see if they're funny or not. But they've learned to, They've so learned to become used to it that that level, that feeling becomes kind of normal. I know wiser people than I have said that there's a real physiological similarity between excitement and anxiety. And so if there are like wiser people than I who say, well, if you refocus, if you reframe some of the things that make you anxious as, as excited, the reason that you your hair stands on end and you, your stomach is in your mouth is anxiety, but it's also excitement, right? And if how, if you can master how you feel, if you can allow yourself to experience the emotion and go, oh, how lucky I am, how lucky I am to still be like thrilled by this. I hope, yeah, I hope that if I ever I were to stop doing stand up, that I'd miss it. I think I'd miss the, I'd miss the fear. I'd miss the fear that of about to be going out because if you're afraid to push your hand through that curtain and when you looking at the, the people drinking their drinks and rummaging around and the quiet chitter-chatter. If you're feeling that fear, you're also feeling that excitement. And if you can reframe it, if you can reframe if you can really capture that thrill of about to be going on and seeing it's a thrill, I think there's a wonderful advantage to that um, that I hope I can still hold on to. And I hope that's relevant for someone else as well. Wonderful. That seems like a really good place to end our fascinating, wide-ranging, <laughs> funny, earnest conversation. <laughs> yeah, probably very earnest. I, I feel like, yes, come see Alex Farrow live for jokes and comedy. That's earnestness on his podcast about anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> Alex Farrow, thank you very much. A pleasure. My guest today was Alex Farrow. You can find Alex at jerichocomedy.com.
I will put the link on the show notes page. Details coming up. You can find links to some of the things we talked about, as well as photos and credits on the show notes page. You can use the bit.ly short link, which is bit.ly B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash anxiety advantage. Or go to my website, tigerspirit.co.uk and click through to the anxiety advantage. As I mentioned earlier, this is the almost last episode of season one. But don't worry, haha. <laughs> season two is in the pipeline to be launched in the new year. And there is still the final episode of season one next week, where we reflect on what my kaleidoscope of guests have shared with us, and I discuss what I have learned during the season one journey. If you haven't listened to previous episodes of season one, you could check out a similar high-level discussion I had with author James Wood, also known as J.W. Wood, about digital life and the age of anxiety. Or try a more personal story that Ellie Russell shared with me about OCD, anxiety and empathy. Subscribe or follow the Anxiety Advantage podcast on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's free. That way you can binge listen to all the season one episodes and the new episodes of season two will pop into your pod listening app as soon as they are published. I'm keen to share stories from people who have found ways to live positively with anxiety. It would be amazingly helpful for me and also our listeners to hear from you if you have a story about transforming anxiety for good or how you have discovered ways to thrive in your life. If you'd like to share your story as part of season two, please email me at anxietyadvantage.uk at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. These podcasts come out of my personal experience and perspective, and I do not claim to speak for everyone who may be living with anxiety. Views expressed by my guests are entirely their own and do not represent my views. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only. If you are affected by anything in these podcasts, please seek the advice of your doctor or other qualified professional. Today, we talked about anxiety and laughter. What other aspects could we explore in next season's podcasts? Drop me a line with your ideas and let's see if we can feature some of them in future episodes. You can email me at anxietyadvantage.uk at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you will follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's free. The last episode of season one next week and new episodes of season two will then pop into your podcast listening app as soon as they are published. I'm Yang Mei Ui. The website link again is bit.ly bit.ly forward slash anxiety advantage if you want to find the show notes page and other episodes. Or go to my website tigerspirit.co.uk and click through to the anxiety advantage. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram where I am at tigerspiruk. There is also a dedicated Anxiety Advantage Twitter account, at Anxiety Thriver. Or you can simply Google the podcast, The Anxiety Advantage, and my name, Yang Mei Ui. Thank you for listening, and see you again next week for the final episode of Season 1. <laughs>